Usually, the changes that Jesus brings in our lives are a little more subtle than that moment that you pray to receive Christ, that you become a follower of Him. Uh, But nevertheless, He continues to change our lives day by day as we yield ourselves to Him, as we submit ourselves to Him. And that's the topic of today's message. Jesus can change your life. We're going to see how Jesus uh, has the authority to change people's lives today. In Mark chapter 1, go ahead and take your Bible. And let's turn to Mark chapter 1. We're going to continue our journey through Mark's gospel. In the first eight chapters of Mark's gospel, Mark uh, talks about uh, this basic question. He asks this question, who is this man? And there's a process of discovery for the readers of Mark's gospel where you're constantly given clues. It's like an Agatha Christie um, uh, novel where uh, you sort of get clues here and there. And finally it unfolds in chapter 8 who this man really is. And today we discover that Jesus has the authority to change people's lives. And it's a very important lesson for us to understand. And even if you're already a a believer, and most of us, I think, in this room are already believers, Jesus still has that authority to change your life, to conquer those things that you may be going through, that you're struggling with. And we're going to see that today. Jesus is the authority over your temptation and your suffering. In Mark chapter 1, verse 12 and verse 13, here's what we read. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. This happened right after the baptism of Jesus. And as you know, when Jesus was baptized, he came up out of the water and his ministry began. And the very next thing that happened was the temptation account. When Jesus had to face Satan and had to face those temptations, being in the wilderness, being in the desert for 40 days. Now, you also read about the temptation account in Matthew chapter 4 and in Luke chapter 4. And of course, in those two uh, books, the temptation account is much longer. You get into all the details, the kinds of temptations, the discussion that he had with Satan, how he quoted the Word of God. Here in Mark's gospel, it's very brief, just two verses long, and uh, we just read about it, and it sort of leads us to this question, why? Why didn't Mark include more details like Matthew and Luke did? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Number one, I believe that Mark was the third gospel written, that uh, Matthew was written first, Luke second, and Mark third. And Mark borrowed some of his material from Matthew and Luke, but he wrote it for a specific purpose. They each had different reasons for writing. Matthew wrote to Jews who needed to understand that Jesus is their king. He is their Messiah. Uh, Luke wrote to Greeks who needed to understand that Jesus was really human. He really was a human. They had sort of a descetic view. They had this view that uh, maybe Jesus was sort of a, a spirit or something like that. And Luke had to write that Jesus really was human. And that's why Luke took two entire chapters to talk about the very birth of Christ. In Matthew, or excuse me, in Mark's gospel, Mark is writing for a different audience. He's writing to Romans who are suffering under Nero's persecution. Nero was the emperor of Rome. And we'll talk about him a little bit more in just a minute. But uh, Mark was writing to these suffering believers who were facing persecution. 
and they may have already been familiar with all the details. Mark did not see a need to go back into all the details. To Mark, the details of the temptation don't matter as much as this fact, that you can relate to Jesus Christ. Okay? That you and Jesus have something in common. And what you have in common in these two verses is temptation and suffering. If you're tempted, if you're suffering, Jesus understands he's been there. In Mark, you also have an interesting uh, word in verse 12. It says the Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit, immediately drove Jesus out into the wilderness. Matthew's Gospel said the Holy Spirit led Jesus out. Luke says the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness. Mark uses a different word. That Jesus was driven. He was impelled. He was almost forced into the wilderness. That's, that's what that word means. It's a very strong and powerful, it's a driving kind of idea. And it's not that Jesus went against his own will, but it's that as, as soon as he was baptized, there was something Jesus was compelled to do, and it was to be alone and to go out into the wilderness by himself. And to have no food for 40 days. The Spirit of God drove Jesus into the wilderness in order to be tempted. It's the idea of if you've ever been in the army, or if you've ever been in the armed forces, a drill sergeant waking you up at 4 a.m. You're going to wake up when that drill sergeant is banging that drum and he's yelling in your ear. It's that kind of get up out of bed. There's nothing else you can do but to wake up. So it's that kind of idea. It's the idea of a smoke alarm going off in your house. You will find the problem, whether it just needs a new battery. You will find the problem if there's smoke in the house. It's going to get your attention. That's the kind of idea here, that the Spirit of God got Jesus' attention in such a way that he was forced almost, he was driven out into the wilderness. Why? Why does Mark use this word? He's telling us this, it was necessary for Jesus to face his adversary from the very outset of his ministry. It wasn't the kind of idea where Jesus would begin his ministry and things were, all, things were just going to be a bunch of bed of roses. Things were just going to be nice and kind and sweet and maybe some sufferings would come later. No, from the very outset of his ministry, Jesus was going to suffer. Jesus was going to be tempted. It shows us that he's qualified to be our Savior, that he's been there, that he's like you, he's like me. We can relate to Jesus. He suffered like you suffer, only he suffered to a greater extent. Mark uses another strange phrase in verse 13. It says, he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals. Mark's the only one of the three synoptic gospels. The synoptic means like synonym. It's the same kind of word. Synoptic means very similar kind of gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are, are fairly similar. Not exactly, but fairly similar. Mark is the only writer of these three synoptic gospels to talk about he was with the wild animals. Why? Well, some theologians believe that 
he was trying to paint a picture of the lion and the lamb in the messianic kingdom. Everyone's just living in harmony, like, a, like an old Disney movie. The birds are singing and everything like that. And, and so the, the animals are not going to attack him. I don't think that's quite it. Because Mark uses the term wild animals. The scary, the dangerous, the beastly, the fanged animals. The animals that could tear them to pieces. Those were the animals that Jesus was with. It's the idea that these animals were hostile. These animals represented the forces of evil. Um, In fact, Jews in Jesus' day had this concept that you better be careful going out in the wilderness, out in the desert, because that's where the demons lived. Okay, the, so the place where Jesus was, according to the Jews in that day, was a dangerous place. It was a spiritually dark place. That's where the demons were. That's where the wild animals are. Something's going to get you out there. And so Mark is telling us that that's where Jesus is. He's in a hostile place. He's, being, he, he's surrounded by things that could attack him, that could uh, hurt him. And you have to remember this. Who is Mark writing to? Mark was writing to Christians who were facing persecution at the hands of Nero in Rome. Nero was a horrible, horrible person. When Nero began to persecute Christians, he took some of them, and he lit them on fire. He impaled them on torches, lit them on fire to light his garden. Nero took other Christians to the arena and had them crucified, which was the common form of execution. Nero took other Christians to the arena, and they were torn apart by the wild animals. I believe that Mark was telling his readers, Jesus was with wild animals too. Jesus understands what you're going through. He was with the wild animals. And then Mark adds this, the angels were ministering to him. Does this mean during the temptation the angels were ministering to him, protecting him? Does it mean after the temptation? Mark doesn't tell us for sure. If it's during, then we can rest assured that the angels will minister to us during our time of suffering, during our, our temptations. If it's afterwards that the angels began to minister to Jesus, if Jesus was sort of completely alone, even without the ministry of angels during the temptation, but later, the, uh, once it was done, the angels came and ministered to him, then Mark wants us to know that we can endure suffering, and we will find divine relief someday once we endure it. But whichever lesson it is, I think both lessons could absolutely be true in our lives. Now, here is what I think is the most interesting part of Mark's account of the temptation. Matthew is very clear, and Luke is very clear, that Jesus won the temptation, right? I mean... He didn't give in. At every account, Jesus quoted God's word and he was victorious. Mark doesn't say a thing about Jesus being victorious over temptation. It's not there. Let's read it again. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering to him. It doesn't say. Now we know what happened. And I think Mark's readers know what happened. That Jesus, of course, was victorious. Why does Mark not explicitly mention whether Jesus was victorious? I believe it's for this reason. Because this was not the last temptation for Jesus. 
This was not the last suffering that Jesus would endure. Jesus would struggle with Satan throughout the rest of his life. You see, if you're in the midst of temptation, if you're in the midst of suffering, Jesus knows that it's a struggle. And here's a hard lesson for us to learn. Even when you're faithful in the midst of this struggle, there may be another one coming down the road. But you be faithful. You remain faithful. Your victory will come. So for Mark, the victory is not yet. The victory is coming. But it's not yet. Jesus has much more to endure. And so Jesus has authority over your struggle, over your temptation. If you lean on Him, if you trust in Him daily with your struggles, Jesus will give you the victory. Just be faithful. Just be faithful. Jesus also has authority over your life's direction. Look at verses 14 and 15. We see the message now after, after the temptation occurred. John writes, excuse me, Mark writes, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. What happened? Herod arrested John the Baptist. And when that happened in that region, Jesus decided... I'm going to leave Herod's region. I'm going to go north into Galilee. And my ministry will be there. Smart move on the surface. But more than that, Jesus was essentially understanding my time to be arrested and crucified is not yet. I haven't even begun my ministry really. And so I'm going to go north and I'm going to find those men that I had, many of whom I'd talked to before. I'm going to gather them to myself, and they're going to be my disciples. And so Jesus moved north into Galilee. And here was his message. The time is fulfilled. That's a powerful statement. That's a powerful statement. For Jesus to say that the Scriptures are fulfilled today. I mean, that's a powerful statement. We look upon people who say, uh, that the New Testament prophecies, oh, they're going to be fulfilled in three months. They're going to be, you know, the, the Mayan calendar says we're going to all die in 2012. That didn't turn out exactly right. Um, but we look at people who make modern prophecies and say, it's going to happen within our lifetime. It's going to happen within this year. It's going to happen within this month. And that's a pretty powerful statement for people to say. Jesus said something just as powerful. He said the scriptures are fulfilled today. Luke, of course, has that story where Jesus walks into the synagogue and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah and he says, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing today. What a powerful statement. So that was Jesus' message. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Now, they, there are a lot of understandings about what the kingdom of God meant. For most people, I wish God would, in Jesus' day, they'd say, I wish God would bring in his kingdom so we wouldn't be ruled by those mean Romans anymore and they would over they keep overtaxing us and we'd have freedom and we could serve our own king like King David a thousand years before. That's what they meant by the kingdom of God. For many of us, unfortunately, we have a misunderstanding of what the kingdom of God means too. We think, well, 
when I die, I'm going to go into the presence of God and I'm going to live in heaven forever. That's where the kingdom of God is. It's in heaven. Listen, the kingdom of God, when Jesus said it's at hand, or elsewhere where he said the kingdom of God is here, here's what he meant. He didn't mean that someday when you die, you're going to go to heaven. That's true, but that's not what he meant. What he meant is that the spiritual kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is going to invade this earth. It's coming down to this earth. And Jesus is saying, it's done that today. I'm here. And God's rule, God's dominion, God's kingdom is here on this earth right now. And you're looking at him. That's what Jesus meant. And so this is a powerful message. A message that people ultimately had to either completely accept or completely deny. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has invaded this world and it is here. And here's your response. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe. Turn away from your unbelief. Turn away from your sin. Turn away from your selfishness. And today, believe in the good news. The good news about what? The good news about God. That God loves you so much that He has come to you. That's the message that Jesus preached. And then Jesus begins to call His messengers, His disciples. In verses 16 through 20 we read, Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending the nets. And immediately he called them. And they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Now, if you read this without an understanding of anything else, any of the other Gospels, you might say, I, this is sort of difficult to understand, that a stranger would just come up, say, follow me, and okay, I'll quit my business, and I'll leave my family, and I'll just follow you. It didn't exactly happen that way. Because we have another account of uh, Jesus interacting with these four men in John's Gospel. And that's the first time that Jesus met these men. They already knew who he was. And after they met him that first time, they went about their business again, and Jesus sought them out. And now, they already understand who he is. They, they understand that he must be the Messiah that God has sent. And Jesus has allowed them to go back to their business. And basically, I think we can infer Jesus was saying, I'll get back to you. Well, now he's back to them. And he comes up to them. They recognize him, and he says, follow me. And I will make you fishers of men. Who were these four? Simon and Andrew and, and James and John. All these four were fishermen. They were all fishermen. In fact, perhaps as many as seven of the twelve disciples were fishermen. Why did Jesus pursue these fishermen? Well, fishermen in that day, were they had to be patient. They had to be strong. They had to many times row their boat. They had to haul in their nets. It wasn't like they set out their trolling motor and they went around the lake. Um, it wasn't that easy. They had to be energetic. They had to be tenacious. And fishermen in that day, you couldn't just go out on the boat by yourself. Um, that's not the way it worked. You had to work together. They had to be a team. And these are all good qualities for soul winners. 
And that's what Jesus is talking about when he says, fishers of men. We're going to go win some people. We're going to be soul winners. That's going to be your life's calling. You're going to help draw people into the kingdom of God. Think about those qualities. Patient, strong, energetic, tenacious, working together as a team. That's what we need in the church. That's what Jesus needs in his followers. Now, most rabbis have men seek them out. Most rabbis, when, when they're teaching in the synagogue or they're near the temple, they sort of sit around, they begin to teach, and people think, you know, that, that teaching sounds pretty good, and they begin to follow these rabbis. And so it's, there's something in the quality of the rabbi that makes people want to seek them out. With Jesus, it was just the opposite. Now, he had all the good qualities in the world, but these men were not seeking Jesus out. He sought them out. There was something within them that Jesus knew about that he said, I want these men to be my followers. And that teaches us something as well. When Jesus sees you, when he sees me, and when he brings us to salvation, it's not because we're so good and so wonderful that Jesus saves us, but at the same time, there's something in you that Jesus wants to use to expand his kingdom. There's something in you that Jesus wants to use to edify God's people. And so Jesus gives them a call. The call is simple. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This wasn't a call to repent and believe. They had already met Christ, but to follow and to become soul winners. To become soul winners. You see, Jesus had begun his ministry. The kingdom of God was breaking into the world. And now was the time to rescue the perishing. Now was the time. It was imperative to have fishers of men immediately. And these disciples, they gave up everything to follow Jesus. I want you to think about something. We know that Peter was married. How do we know that? Because Jesus healed Peter's, mother, uh, Peter's wife's mother. Jesus healed Peter's mother-in-law. Peter was married. And if the, the lady was still alive at the time, Peter gave up his marriage for a time to go follow Jesus all over Galilee. He gave up his uh, job. Every one of these men gave up their normal lives to go and follow Jesus, their normal way to pr produce income to go and follow Jesus. These men demonstrated the kind of commitment that it takes when the kingdom of God breaks into this world. What kind of response do we need? We need a radical response. We need an immediate response. We need a response of total submission to God. And I would say to you, that response that's required of, that was required of those men is still required of us today. Our response to Jesus cannot be half-hearted. It cannot be halfway. It cannot be 50%. Our response to Jesus must be 100%. We must totally surrender our lives to Christ. You see, nothing else matters than following Christ and being fishers of men. You may feel like in your life, your life is sort of like a war. You may feel like everything in your life is sort of turned upside down. And maybe it is, but here's the danger. When you feel like everything in your life is attacking you, what do you want to do? Well, I just want to crawl in a hole and protect myself. Let me tell you something. 
If you're under attack, and you are if you're a believer, if you're under attack, what do you do? What do you do in a war? What you do in a war is you fight back. You fight back. And you see, now is the time for us to fight against the forces of Satan. Jesus said the gates of hell cannot stand when we are on the attack. And so Jesus used his authority to call out messengers. We have four of them here that were called out. But guess what? Jesus used his authority to call you out too. You and I, we are his messengers. And then in verses 21 and 22, we see Jesus teaching. It says, And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered in the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. The synagogues were developed when the uh, uh, Jews were taken into the Babylonian captivity, and they didn't have a way to worship God anymore. Their temple was destroyed. And so here was the rule. If there were 10 men, 10 people, who, males who were 13 years of age and older in one area, then they could form a synagogue. Then they could worship God together. And uh, it was very likely that these, of these 10 men, none were rabbis. And so they would invite any rabbi that happened to visit their synagogue, they would invite them to come and to teach from the, from the Hebrew Scriptures. And that's why it wasn't unusual for Jesus to walk into a synagogue as a rabbi and begin to open up the scrolls and to teach. And the people would listen to what he had to say. Paul did the same thing in Paul's missionary journeys. And so these services that the synagogues had, they were led by laymen, not by priests. And so Jesus came in and he began to teach And the response was, they were amazed at his teaching. Why? Because most of the other times, the rabbis would come in and they would quote some other teacher. Well, this teacher says this and this other teacher says that. Jesus taught as one who had authority. He taught as one who understood the scriptures and had authority. And Jesus had authority over the demonic as well. In verses 23 through 28, here's what we read. Here in the synagogue, immediately there was... In their synagogue, a man with an unclean spirit. And he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Here's a man who apparently had been to the synagogue day after day after day after day, and no one realized he had a demon. No one realized he was demon-possessed. Why? Because God wasn't present with them. Even though the people of God were there, there was no indication. How many times uh, did this man go to the synagogue? He, he apparently felt quite at home there among the people of God until God showed up. And as soon as God showed up, the demon identified himself. And look what he said. What have you, what have you to do with us? Who's the us he's talking about? Later we read that it's just one demon. It's not multiple demons in this man. The us is the, man, is the demon who's inside the man. That's the us. In other words, this demon had grown so close to the man that they were essentially one and the same. There was no longer a struggle between this man and the demonic. He'd given in. 
And so the demon said, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. This demon had good theology. He called Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. This demon knew that Jesus was human. He was Jesus of Nazareth. This, this demon knew that Jesus was God. He called him the Holy One of God. He had good theology. But of course, being a demon, his heart was unclean. Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Verse 26. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him, and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. Who is this man that showed up today? And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Listen, Jesus has authority over your temptations. He has authority over your sufferings. Jesus has authority over the direction of your life. Jesus even has authority over the demonic spirits, the demonic forces that come against you. There's nothing that Jesus doesn't have authority over. He has authority over all things. And so the question becomes, what is stopping Jesus, who has all authority, from changing your life? The answer can only be one thing, and it's you. Jesus has authority over all things. But if he's not changing your life, it is because you have not yielded yourself to him. You're not willing. Today, I believe, is the time to turn away from your unbelief and to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. If today you are not a believer in Christ, Today's the time to turn away from that and to say, I want to trust Christ. I want to follow Him today. And if today you're already a believer, but Jesus isn't really in control, He's not really changing your life, the same message is true. You need to turn away from that and yield yourself to Christ. Would you do that this day?